The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, I'm told that from time to time, those who fish with large nets find that sometimes their nets become torn or ripped. Uh, Whether because of a snag on a rock or a ship or getting caught in a propeller or maybe just after months of use in catching aggressive fish, sometimes the nets begin to develop holes. And for a person whose business it is to catch things in their net, if their net has a hole in it, it will be less likely to catch things, and consequently, that's bad for business. So when that happens, the fisherman must decide, am I replacing the whole net, or am I able to repair the hole? Replacing an entire net can be a difficult-to-manage expense in a knife-edge business like commercial fishing, and so repairing those nets are far more common. I want you to watch Master Fisherman Michael Peel show you and me how to repair a hole in your fishing net with just a few clever knots and some fresh nylon string. Take a look. As commercial fishermen, sometimes our nets get holes in them. We have to cut them out and repair them. We use a typical overhand knot to start on a flat and sew to a point and you end on a flat. And you take a piece of nylon string, the same gauge, and you do an overhand knot, and then you do a, a couple back knots, and you seize it down like that. And you come over to this point, and you try to gauge it, knot to knot. You try to get that knot, even with that knot, that way your holes aren't the same or different sizes. And you bring this knot up and you seize this end down with a double knot. And that completes that little repair and takes you some scissors or a knife and cut it off. And that's the end product of repairing a net. All knots are uniform. Mending your nets. Amazing. And while the lifespan of fishing nets has improved since folks now use nylon in their net making and not natural fibers like linen, still, even modern nets develop holes and need to be fixed. In Jesus' day, mending nets was a daily chore for anyone fishing by profession. One historian and researcher who has looked into it puts it like this. says, one of the most important skills of fishermen was making and mending nets. Made of linen, a common fabric used in the ancient Near East, these nets had to be carefully cleaned and dried each day or they would quickly rot and wear out. Net weights, small pieces of stone with holes drilled in them, were fastened to the bottom of the nets and would also need to be replaced frequently. The majority of a fisherman's life probably was spent mending nets. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus walks along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee where fishing families were busy at work. One family of two brothers, Peter and Andrew, were busy casting their nets into the sea. Another family of two brothers, James and John, were sitting in their boats mending their nets. Follow me, Jesus says, and I will make you fishers of people. Jesus calls these 
four fishermen who were in the middle of their fishing business. And the text says they left their boats and their nets and their daily chores behind and began to follow Jesus. Well, what does it mean to fish for people? I mean, that's what we have been considering here for the last few weeks. What does it mean for Jesus to view his work from the perspective of a fisherman, one who sits above the water, who prepares a suitable net, who casts the net, drawing it up into the boat to do it again and again and again until there are no more fish left to catch? How does this translate into what Jesus calls and empowers the church to do in our world? What does it mean to fish for people? The trouble for us in understanding that is that besides that initial call to the fishermen, apart from those first words, I will make you fishers of people, Jesus never again in Matthew's gospel talks about what that means. Like, if these fishermen thought they were enrolling in like a fishing seminar with a teacher who would instruct them on fishing techniques or strategies, they would have been disappointed. Jesus will never again bring up this idea of fishing for people. So what? Follow me. I'll make you fishers of people. I mean, is that it? No further explanation or discussion about what that means? Like, is that supposed to make sense to anybody? And besides, church, apart from those of the cannibalistic persuasion, who even fishes for people? Like, I mean, isn't the metaphor even a bit aggressive? Like, I mean, in the end, does it just mean that humans are like helpless fish caught up in the brutal net of God? And if so, to what end? Is it a good thing to be called to fish for people? I mean, what if the people don't want to be caught? Do we throw them back in? What do we do with the people we do catch? Do we pose for a selfie with the recently converted? Do we brag about how many people our nets are reaching? I don't think it's too much to say that the call to fish for people needs some explanation. It needs some clarification. It needs some more information or context. Otherwise, it just sounds weird. For the past few weeks, I've been trying to make the case to you that in Matthew's gospel, I think the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount might be viewed as Jesus' continued lessons in what it actually means to fish for people. In Matthew 4, Jesus calls some fishermen, and in Matthew 5, he sits those people down, and he teaches them about life in God's kingdom. There on the mountainside, Jesus fills in a bit more about what he meant when he described the work of the kingdom as fishing for people. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is going to summarize the work of the kingdom like this. He's going to say, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. And when it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets and threw out the bad. So what does it mean to throw a net into the sea of the world and catch fish of every kind? I think Jesus explains a bit of that indirectly in the three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount. Here we learn about how wide the nets of the kingdom are. We learn how to mend those nets. We learn about the rules aboard Jesus' kingdom ship. We learn both the wide-angle vision of Christ for a world made right, but we also learn about the macro close-ups on how citizens of that kingdom pray and tithe and fast. 
The Sermon on the Mount is to Christ what the I Have a Dream speech was to Dr. King. It is a vision for an alternate world, a different reality filled with metaphors and images and robust calls to action. It is a sermon designed to place in your mind the belief that no other vision for the world should be desired. And the call to you and me is to begin to make that world a reality in our daily lives. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' explanation of what God's kingdom is all about and what it means for you and me to be citizens of that kingdom. And it serves as a perfect follow-up to the command of Christ, follow me and I'll make you fishers for people. And today the lessons of Christ continue. Today, amid the teaching from Matthew 5, 13 to 20, we hear an unspoken command, a command to mend your nets. More on that in a minute. In today's gospel reading, we start the playback of the Sermon on the Mount podcast near the beginning, just a dozen or so verses in. Last week, in Matthew 5, 1 through 12, Jesus outlined the far reaches of where his kingdom nets are being hurled, into the lives of the poor and crushed in spirit, into the lives of the meek and downtrodden, into the lives of those starving for righteousness, for those working for peace, for those willing to show mercy. We considered the nine blessings of the Beatitudes and saw that God's kingdom was arriving in the form of a large cast net that sinks down into the depths of this world to draw up all sorts of people and experiences. And today's portion of the gospel comes right on the heels of those Beatitudes, and it includes some relatively familiar words for us who have been in the church for a little bit. Uh, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden, verse 14. Let your light shine before others, verse 16. But these verses also include some more unfamiliar or confusing words from Christ that you might have missed in your Sunday school classrooms as a child. Verse 13. If salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything. Verse 18, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Or verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now church, it eclipses the potential of any single sermon to effectively deal with all of these issues comprehensively. There is a lot we could say about the call to the church to be salt and light. There's certainly a lot to say about what it zealously and passionately means to follow God's laws and instructions to us. But today, I think these words of Jesus to us about, being, about salt losing its saltiness or light being hidden under a basket. I think these are all part of the continuing lessons of Christ about fishing for people. Today, Jesus teaches us not how to cast the nets or where to cast the nets, but how to examine those nets. How to do what fishermen did for so much of their work day. How to mend and repair those nets. So church, let's take a look at two principal metaphors in today's text. Salt and light. Both of these metaphors tease out a bit more about what it means for the church to be a church that mends its nets, so let's dive in. First, salt. 
In verse 13, if you have your text in front of you, in verse 13, Jesus borrows a common household item and fills it with spiritual meaning. You all, he says to his followers, you all are the salt of the earth. He's talking about salt. Salt is a principal ingredient in food preparation, as many of you know from your own baking or cooking. From making bread to seasoning meat, salt is a key spice. But in Jesus' day, salt was also a principal storage and preservation agent. Food items could be immersed in salt, and since salt is a desiccant, since it absorbs moisture and prevents it from forming around the food, it dramatically reduces the time it took for that food to decay or spoil. Since we're talking about fishing today, you should know that it was a common practice for Romans in the first century to take salmon, for example, and uh, cut it, clean it, and then smoke it, and then bury it in salt in a covered urn and just keep it out. And the salt would keep the salmon from going bad for months. I mean, months. What does Jesus say about the disciples? He says, you all are the salt of the earth. Those who hear what Jesus teaches and does what he commands are people who to the earth are what salt is to food. He might have meant that his followers will enhance the flavor of the world like salt does to bread or rice or a beautiful fatty burger patty sizzling on a cast iron skillet. But actually, I think Jesus may have been saying that his followers' words and deeds will work like salt to preserve this world from the bacterial forces of decay. Like the ways that we as the church love and forgive and welcome, and show compassion, and work on behalf of the poor and disenfranchised, these things create a buffer zone between the forces of evil and the people who live in this world. And like burying salmon in a bin of salt preserves the salmon, when the church is actively proclaiming the gospel and bearing witness to it in our radical acts of love, the world becomes preserved from the decay of despair, hopelessness, and isolation. You all are the salt of the world, Jesus says. Verse 13, Jesus says, If the salt has become tasteless, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything but thrown out and trampled underfoot. I mean, what does it mean for salt to lose its saltiness? And the thing about salt is that it never goes bad. It does not mold or spoil or go stale. Salt is salt for like ever. Even if it's left out on the counter, salt does not ever lose its saltiness, at least chemically. It's still the same. The only way for salt to lose its saltiness, I suppose, would be for it to be diluted by something external to it. Think about it. If I took a quarter cup of salt and I dissolved it into a full cup of water. I mean, first off, that would be an extremely salty concoction. Like, it would be approaching the maximum salt-to-water ratio you could have before the water just simply can't process anymore. But if I took that same quarter cup of salt and I dumped it in a bathtub full of water, well, the water would barely taste salty. I didn't change the saltiness of the salt, but I did add it to a whole bunch of something else that diluted it and robbed it of its properties. Jesus says, don't let that happen to you. 
my followers. Do not allow the diluting agents of this world to render your saltiness void. Over-diluted salt will not preserve anything. And in fact, such salt isn't worth anything anymore anyway, just to be tossed out. I mean, the really hard part is that it is often difficult for us to know when that saltiness of being Jesus' followers has begun to be diluted. What dilutes kingdom salt? Well, you might say anti-kingdom forces, anti-kingdom activities and habits. I mean, if if being part of Jesus' kingdom means, for example, holding loosely to our material possessions and instead acting in radically generous ways towards others, like Matthew 5.42 says, then choosing to hoard our possessions, giving shrewdly, or being tight-fisted in our dealings with the poor are all actions or habits that dilute the kingdom's salt. Or if being part of Jesus' kingdom means forgiving people who have done wrong by us, Matthew 6, 14. Or if being part of Jesus' kingdom means not bearing false witness or being harbingers of misinformation, Matthew 5, 37. If being part of Jesus' kingdom means not yearning after your friend's spouse or even thinking about such things, Matthew 5, 27. Well, it follows that the doing of these anti-kingdom things dilutes the saltiness of our identity. So many church leaders in the past few decades have come forward to admit to one scandal after another, some deviously heinous and others ignorantly foolish. But with every published open letter and hasty resignation rendered, the saltiness of the church's witness is diluted. And to that end, I think it is important for us to realize, it is vital for us to see that Jesus does not say, you singular are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say, you Peter are the salt of the earth. He uses the second person plural, you all are the salt of the earth. And the problem comes that when one or two of us cultivate anti-kingdom attitudes or practices, it's not that one or two are just bad eggs, but rather the collective witness of the church is diluted and made tasteless. You have met people, I have met people, I'm sure you have as well, who have said, I can't be a Christian. Do you know what the church did to me? Do you know what a pastor said to me at a funeral for a relative who committed suicide? Do you know what the church did? The collective witness becomes diluted. If that is what Christianity is like, some would say, show me the exit, says a world uninterested in being preserved or seasoned by tasteless salt. Salt. Jesus also says, you are the light of the world. Again, you, again, plural. You all are the light of the world. Of the world. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. Different metaphor, light, not salt, same message. In Jesus' day, there was no whole house electricity or overhead fluorescent lights to illuminate a dark space. There were oil lamps that could be carried from room to room, and the lamp needed to be elevated if it was going to do much good. So you'd put it on a stand, and it would refract the light around the room. And if you covered up the oil lamp, you'd plunge the whole house into darkness. If we, as Christ's church, are like light, then the more that we listen and act according to what Jesus said and did, the more clear the light becomes. 
Conversely, when we adopt anti-kingdom attitudes or behaviors, when we begin to despise the poor, covet our friend's spouse, harbor anger with our siblings, should we forego the actions of prayer or fasting or giving away our resources? Should we only give away our things when it benefits us immediately, etc., etc., etc.? The more it is as if we take an opaque basket and just put it on top of the oil lamp that is supposed to bring light. The light the church brings is supposed to offer hope, endurance, a calming reassurance that God has not abandoned this world. And apart from that light, the house of the world is kept in darkness and despair and hopelessness. Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not obscure the light. Don't dilute the salt. To steer us back to our fishing metaphor, the bottom line in all of these examples is this. You and I cannot participate in Jesus' fishing project with a net filled with holes. The holes in our net, the times when the salt loses its saltiness or the light becomes obscured, those are the times when we profess things about Jesus on a Sunday, but the actions we take on a Monday or a Thursday or a Saturday do not correspond in any meaningful way to those beliefs. Sunday's worship and Monday's work had better be complementary to each other. There had better be some sort of shaping power of our faith upon the things that we do outside of this sanctuary. Because if not, it's not just your nets that get ripped. It's all of our nets. Oh, he goes to first press? He's a total jerk at work. She goes to first press? I asked her for help getting a bus pass, and she ignored me completely. Oh, that's the senior pastor at first press? I heard him yelling at his kids. Whoops. Church, what we profess to believe about Jesus, about God's work of salvation being done in this world, about the importance of prayer and reading scripture and coming to worship and all the rest, they must, it must have an impact, a shaping role on the rest of our lives. And the call to all of us, myself, you, everyone here, is for us to take a few moments and check our nets. Like pull them into your boat, dry them off, and inspect them. Where has our salt become diluted? Where has our light become obscured? In what ways have our habits and actions ceased corresponding to the kingdom of God as Jesus proclaimed it? In what ways might there be gaping holes in our nets? And the call to us today is, church, mend your nets. And we can start right now, today, right here at this table. As you process forward today to receive the sacrament, as, as you hear those words, the bread of life for you, the cup of salvation for you, remember that you are receiving the very thing you and I cannot possibly earn. God's grace is stronger and infinitely able to take all of our torn nets, all of our diluted salt, all of our obscured light, and repair, renew, and revive us. So church, search your heart, check your nets, and see where you might find ways of putting the way of Jesus into practice in your family, in your home, in your office, in your school, in your neighborhoods. And then come, receive from Christ a measure of his grace 
at this table. Church, let us mend our nets. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church say. Thanks for listening this week. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. You can learn more about us at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.